Welcome to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, where for 25 years we have offered voices of conscience, key issues in ethical perspective. My name is Tim Hart Anderson. I'm the senior minister at Westminster Presbyterian Church, located on Nicollet Mall in beautiful downtown Minneapolis, and the moderator of today's program. We invite those of you who are listening on Minnesota Public Radio to visit us in person. All forums are free and open to the public. Information on upcoming town hall forums can be found online at eWestminster.org. We are especially pleased to welcome into our studio sanctuary audience today over 400 high school students from Purpich Center for the Arch, Sage Academy, Southwest High School and Blake School, and also college students from McAllister. If you'd like to say hello to the world out there on the radio, please do so now. Thank you, you're one moment of fame. It's my pleasure to introduce the final speaker in our 25th anniversary series on the arts, creativity, and the common good. Salman Rushdie is an internationally acclaimed author of novels, essays, criticism, and short stories. Mr. Rushdie's writings have challenged, provoked, enlightened, and entertained readers throughout the world for more than 30 years. His novels combine storytelling with political and social commentary creating fiction that, as he describes, can do what newspapers can't, which is allow the reader to enter imaginatively into realities that would otherwise be alien to them." End quote. Salman Rushdie was born into a Muslim family in Bombay, India in 1947, just eight weeks after or before India gained its independence from British colonial rule. He spent his childhood in Bombay and at the age of 13 moved to England where he attended school at rugby and studied history at King's College in Cambridge. His first published novel, Grimace, was released in 1975. And in 1981, his critically acclaimed novel, Midnight's Children, appeared on bestseller lists around the world. A later novel, The Satanic Verses, resulted in a fatwa calling for his death and provoked more discussion in more countries, perhaps, on the role of literature in society than any other novel in our time. Mr. Rushdie is the recipient of numerous awards for his writing, including the Booker Prize, the Whitbread Prize for Best Novel, the Writers Guild Award, the James Tate Black Prize, and Author of the Year Prizes in both Britain and Germany. His novels explore, in Mr. Rushdie's words, the transformation that comes of new and unexpected combinations of human beings cultures, ideas, politics, movies, and songs. In the end, he has said, stories are what's left of us. Ladies and gentlemen, please join me in welcoming to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, Salman Rushdie. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I can do this too. Um, well, thank you very much. It's nice to be back here in, in uh, Minneapolis, and very nice of you to come out in such numbers to do the strange thing of listening to a writer speak. Um, there is actually no reason at all why writers should be able to do this, and in about 55 minutes or so you may agree. <laughs> um, actually, this idea of writers going out and about and talking to 
audiences interested in their work and their ideas was probably, if not invented, then, then greatly popularized by Charles Dickens. Um, Charles Dickens was good at inventing or popularizing things. One of his other inventions, um, Christmas, uh, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, seem, seemed to catch on. Um, and, and this, he used to travel, actually he did it mostly in America because he got paid more money to do it in America, uh, which he liked. And, and he, would, he would go around the country performing his greatest hits, so to speak, and acting out scenes from his novels with great energy, um, doing all the roles in all the different voices, including the female parts. Uh, apparently his death of little Nell was particularly well liked. And, and, and uh, the fact that he was bearded appeared not to interfere with the audience's pleasure. But the problem with this was that he did it so much that it, it damaged his health. And after his last tour in, in the United States, he, he, he fell ill and he went back to England and, and died not long afterwards. So the moral of the story is that some writers are good at this, but it kills them. <laughs> so, um, so here I am, I guess, risking my life. Um, not for the first time, perhaps. Um, uh, to, to discuss the subject of what art has to do with the common good. And just before I offer some thoughts about that, I would like to offer the, the, the opposite thought, which is that it's extremely important, I think, for art literature to be allowed to be useless, you know, to, be, to, be, to be lacking in use. I think we, we have sometimes too utilitarian a view um, of, what, uh, of what the arts are, are about. And I, I think that it's, it's quite important to say that it's, it's possible that they are for nothing at all. Uh, they just are. They have no purpose um, necessarily. Sometimes they do, but it's not part of the job necessarily. Uh, I mean, what is the use of Alice in Wonderland? You know, you can't clean your car with it. You know, you, it's quite thin. You can't stand on it and get to a high shelf. Um, there, there are senses in which it is no use to anyone. And actually, as a, as, because I knew I was coming here, I found myself after a long time picking up and, and plunging into, with immense pleasure, um, The Great Gatsby. And even though that's a book which now regularly comes at the top of any list of the greatest American novels, um, and I must say, rereading it, I was just um, astounded by the greatness of the book and by, by the wonder of its writing. I did, it did occur to me, but if I was asked what it was useful for, I would actually find it very difficult to answer the question. Um, I mean, it's useful for opening a world to us, I suppose, and, and um, insofar as that's useful, it's useful. But very few books have a direct effect on a society that can be quantified in advance. I mean, probably the most celebrated example of such a book would be Uncle Tom's Cabin. Um, and uh, I mean, actually, as it happened, I was in Cincinnati last week and found myself speaking at a, at a, a venue at which Harriet Beecher Stowe had also spoken. So I went and had a look at Uncle Tom's Cabin, which is not nearly as good a book as The Great Gatsby, it has to be said. Um, um, I mean, really, at times, it is difficult to turn the pages. Um, um, <laughs> um, you know, when you hear about Topsy that she just growed, you know, you want to throw up, really. But, um, <laughs> but, you know, in spite of this, 
it is, it is true that that book had an enormous impact on attitudes in this country uh, towards the institution of slavery and really changed a lot of minds and had, a, had an effect that books very rarely have. Um, actually, one or two of Dickens's books did that. When Dickens wrote about the poor schools in the north of England uh, in Nicholas Nickleby, that was actually a contributing factor to subsequent legislation um, outlawing some of the practices of those schools. Um, on the whole, however, books do not work like that. Um, what happens with the book is much more mysterious, which is there's an intimacy in the act of reading which is not present in the way in which we experience many of the other arts. You know, when you go to, to the movies, the movie is up there and it tells you what it is. And you sit there with other people and you decide if you like what it's telling you and then you leave. Um, the theater, it, it's similar, but with literature, literature happens inside our heads. And it's that very unusual capacity of, uh, of the written word um, that, 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 that it penetrates inside the imagination of the reader that gives it its particular, well, durability for a start, but also its, also its particular power. The imagination of the writer literally enters the imagination of the reader you know, through the eye. And at that point, something happens which can be exciting or less exciting. You know, when I read The Great Gatsby, something very exciting is going on inside my head. And when I read Uncle Tom's Cabin, something slightly less exciting. Um, but what is happening is an, is an interaction between everything that I am as a reader and everything that the, the artist is offering as, as a writer. And as a result, that interaction is different for every reader, because every reader brings to the book a completely different set of preconceptions and ideas and you know, things bugging them and, and so on. And as a result, the book is slightly different for every person who reads it. And it is that, that is the most extraordinary, I think, and mysterious power of literature, that it is that the act of the writing of a book is completed by the reading of the book. Um, and therefore, each reader completes the book in a different way. Um, and occasionally, not very often, very occasionally, we fall in love with the book. I mean, I think the number of books we really love may well be quite small. You know, it, 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 it may be five or six. You know, it may be a dozen or twenty. I don't think it's. I don't think it's going to be a lot more than that. You know, it's, it, and. I think if I say 20, it begins to feel a little high. Um, the books that we love, in my view, change us. We are not the people that we were before we read them. And, and what they leave in us is a, is a little residue, which, and then we see the world a little bit through that. It becomes a part of the way in which we see the world. And that is how books change the world. It, they do not. That is much more conventionally how they change the world. You know, the Uncle Tom's Cabin example is an exception. The normal way is that a book that you fall in love with shifts something in yourself. And as a result, all of us are changed by the experience of reading, who have ever read a book. You know? um, but the great thing about it is that neither the writer nor the reader can predict what's going to happen. You know, I, I have no idea what it is in my book which may or may not light up some spark in, in any of your minds or fail to do so. You know, just, it's a mysterious process. It can't be planned or programmed 
uh, or predicted. And yet that is how literature has its most profound effects. Um, and when you look backwards, you can see those effects. When you look back a hundred years, we see immediately, or less than a hundred years, uh, we see immediately that the great books of those periods have come in a way to define those periods. You know, we, we cannot now think about the Napoleonic Wars without thinking about war and peace. We can't, we can't think about the Jazz Age without thinking of Scott Fitzgerald. Um, there, are, there are writers whose visions are so remarkable that they come to represent an entire common experience retrospectively. You know? um, at the time, it's much harder to see that effect. But that is what books do in the world. Um, and it's a mysterious, and I'm happy to say it's mysterious, because be, I would feel it to be a much narrower and less interesting job if it was more predictable. And this, of course, is one of the great differences between literature and politics, and it's one of the reasons why writers and politicians are so often at odds. Um, it's because, in a way, literature and politics are, they're both in the same game. They're in the game of inventing versions of society and then offering it to people to buy. Um, <laughs> um, the difference is that writers or fiction put on the cover of their book the words, a novel. <laughs> uh, thus telling you that what they're offering you is fictitious. Politicians leave that bit out. Um, and so what you find is a curious contemporary paradox, which is that often the people who claim to be telling you the truth are lying their heads off. Uh, whereas the people who admit that what they're doing is entirely made up uh, find a way of telling you some truth. Um, and therefore the two bunches of people really do not get on, on the whole. Um, and and there, there are occasions when a writer of fiction can find himself in serious collision with, uh, if you like, political truth um, because of this problem of truth and lies. And I'll just give you um, an example from when I was writing my book, Midnight's Children. One of the events in that war, in that book, is, a, is an account of the war um, for Bangladesh, the war which resulted in the, in the secession of Bangladesh from what was, it was formerly East Pakistan, um, and the Indians, uh, Indian army assisted or joined in that war at a certain point. Anyway, the point, the point I'm getting at is that the West Pakistan army in, in what was then East Pakistan behaved extremely badly. I mean, that there are very, very well-documented examples of, uh, you know, university lecturers being executed and buried in shallow graves, trades union offices being um, set alight with people inside them, and so on. The, you know, unfortunately, the, the, the list of banal atrocities to which we are getting too used in our, in our present age. Now, as I say, this is not simply me making this up. This is extremely well-documented information. Um, there are eyewitness reports, there are photographic reports, there's all kinds of evidence to support it. However, from that, that was 1971, from that day to this, no Pakistani government of whatever stripe, military or civilian, has, has accepted that, that those atrocities took place. They've always been denied and people have said that those are, you know, it's an Indian or Western or whatever conspiracy um, to, to, um, 
you know, to, to falsify or to bring down the reputation of Pakistan. And it's not so. Unfortunately, it's the truth. So you find yourself in a position as a novelist writing about an event which you personally remember. And you are being told by all official organs that what you are saying is a lie. Um, and as a result, what happens is, without your even wanting to, the act of remembering and writing down a, fiction, a story based on your memory becomes politicized. You find that you're arguing about what is the truth. And that is, I think, increasingly a function that literature has been obliged to take up in the modern world because, to put it bluntly, there's a lot of lies being told by a lot of people in a lot of countries about what's really going on. And as a result, writers who have been brave enough in, in many different countries to speak up and say what's really going on have been the targets of those, of those groups of, of power. Now, I had a little run-in of my own um, of this sort. And I, I, don't know, you know, I don't know, what shall I say about the Ayatollah Khomeini and me? I think the best thing to say is that one of us is dead. <laughs> and well I'll leave it there <laughs> I could say more um, but one of the things that struck me very much about the uh, about the the, um, uh, the fuss around the satanic verses uh, is that it did in a way exemplify this question of the relationship between uh, between the book and that part of the world which is hostile to books, because there were things that happened which were, which would have been funny had they been not funny, um, uh, had they not been not funny. Um, sorry, never use a double negative. My old English teacher taught me, and now I know why. <laughs> um, there was—I remember a moment um, quite early on in the trouble, quite soon after. How shall I put it? After the the excrement had hit the ventilation system. Um, <laughs> uh, when uh, one, of the, one of the Muslim leaders in, in, in England who had been most vocal against my book was interviewed on television and was asked if he'd ever read it. And he said, no, he hadn't, um, pointing out, as he said, that it was not necessary for him to wade in the gutter to know that it contained filth. That's a good point, I thought, you know. Just, uh, and, and, and then the, the journalist said to him, but, you know, Mr. Rishti has written a lot of books. This is his fifth book. He's written a lot of articles in newspapers. Have you ever read anything he's written at all? And the man said, rather sweetly said, innocently, looking at the camera, he said, you know, books are not my thing. <laughs> and uh, I thought there was a great truth there, really. <laughs> uh, and I, I felt that there was a, a, one of the ways of characterizing what happened was um, a, a, that it was a dispute between people for whom books were not their thing and people for whom you know they were. Um, and at the heart of that was an argument about who should have power over the stories inside which we live. I mean, we all live inside stories. You know, family is a story, nation is a story, religion is a story. We all live inside these so-called grand narratives. And in free societies, we continually re-examine and remake them. We continually discard bits of the story that don't seem interesting now and, and, and 
put in new bits. You know, in the case of the nation, there was a time when the story included slavery, then it didn't. There was a point when the story didn't allow women to vote, then it did. Um, in any developing story, in the developing story of a country or a family or whatever, there is a constant process of change. And, and we all have the right to think about how we would like to make that change, and that's one of the descriptions, one of the definitions, one of the ways you could define freedom. But if somebody says to you, well, actually, you do not have that right, we will tell you how the story can be told, and we will tell you what it means, and, if, and you cannot change it, and if you do try and change it, we will come after you. Then that, at that point, these stories stop being enriching, enabling, um, you know, creative uh, forces. They become instead jails, and, and the world in which in such a world becomes a tyranny. And that's what it was about. It was about somebody saying, you cannot tell that story in that way. And you cannot make it or suggest that it might mean those things. And if you do, we're going to have a go at killing you. Um, which, as V.S. Naipaul once said, was an extreme form of literary criticism. Um, <laughs> um, it's probably the nicest thing V.S. Naipaul ever said about me, so I have to... So I have to um, that's the reason for the battle. That's the reason why it was important to have that battle, um, is, to, is to get and retain the right for us, for me as a writer, but also for you as a reader, um, to have that, that argument about the world in which we live and how to remake the stories of our, of our, of our lives. Um, my own, my own books are, have been shaped by the fact that my life has been spent knocking back and forth between East and West, you could say, between India and Pakistan on the one hand and, and England and the United States on the other hand. And one of the things that has showed me is how the world now is unusually interpenetrated, you know, how you cannot, the world is not going to be deglobalized. Um, as a result, we do now not live in segregated cultures. We live in cultures that bump into each other all the time, sometimes excitingly and creatively, and sometimes with terrifying and destructive effect. But that has become an enormous part, I think, of the subject for the contemporary writer, to look at how it is in this world in which we are no longer in neat little separate boxes, but in which all the boxes open up into each other. Um, and, and there is something in the novel as a form which resists this. Because the no at the heart of the novel is something provincial. The novel wants to be about Madame Bovary in rural France being bored with her husband and wanting to have an affair. You know, the novel wants to be about the five Bennett sisters living in Yorkshire going husband hunting. Um, and it doesn't want to be about this very, very big stuff. And the reason for that is that at the heart of the novel, it's very important to retain human scale. The novel is about the human individual. And when you start getting into this epic material, it's very easy to lose the human scale and as a result, to lose the interest of the reader. But it is nevertheless a real subject nowadays because the world is now not like that provincial world of Madame Bovary or the provincial world of, 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 of Pride and Prejudice. You know? I mean, Jane Austen was able to spend her entire career as an author more or less exactly contemporary with the Napoleonic Wars without ever mentioning the Napoleonic Wars. You know, the, the, function of the, the function of the British army in the novels of Jane Austen is to look cute at parties. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
and, and this is, of course, an important function, you know, one doesn't, one doesn't deny. Um, but the fact that they also had a subsidiary function in defeating Napoleon Bonaparte um, was something that she could set aside. Um, and I say this not in a spirit of criticizing her, but only to point out that as recently as that, it was possible to write for her to completely explain the lives of her characters, to profoundly explain the lives of her characters, with no reference at all to the public sphere. Because the public sphere, the Napoleonic Wars, never touched the lives of her characters. Uh, there was a greater gap between private life and public life. And the novel was therefore able to, to, to leave out public life if it so chose. I mean, actually, if you think about Dickens again, here is England's greatest novelist, the greatest novelist who ever wrote in, in, in England, writing at the time when England was the most powerful country in the world, writing at the height of the British Empire. And yet, in that enormous body of work, there is almost no mention of the British Empire. There are about two characters, who, one of whom has been to Australia, and one of whom is, one, there's one character who went to America at some point, and I think there's somebody who once went to India. But I mean, there's, there are the most passing references is all there is to the most significant fact about his country at the time he was writing, which is that it was the most powerful country in the world. Um, extraordinary uh, that he could do that and that he could write all those amazing books without needing to take into account the politics of his time. Now I think it's much harder because not just because we have a TV in the corner or a radio to turn on and the news comes pouring out of it every day, but because it actually you know, has an impact on our daily lives. It shapes our lives. It, it decides what our currency is worth. It decides whether we have jobs or not. You know, uh, the, the public sphere has an impact on private life. P decisions taken by people whose names you don't know, sitting in rooms whose location you're unaware of, can have a direct impact on the way in which you lead your life. And there is, that's another big problem for the novel. How does one recognize that? in the form in which the, at the heart of the form is the idea that our character is our destiny. You know, as, as Heraclitus said 2,000 years ago, a man's character is his fate. Um, and that is the bedrock of the art of the novel. Who we are, the choices we make, determine the lives we lead. Well, that may or may not be true anymore. You know, to put it at its bluntest, when those planes flew into the World Trade Towers, uh, it didn't matter the people, as far as the people who had died are concerned, it didn't matter if they were good people or bad people. It didn't matter if they were, you know, if they were good workers or lazy. It didn't matter what their character was. Their character did not determine their destiny. Something else did. And now, of course, to an extent, that's always been true. There's always been the random, the, the, the eruption of the random into life. There have always been wars and accidents and murders and so on. But it does seem we live in an age in which it is more true than ever before that things outside our power can become the determining factors in our lives. And there is, again, a real problem there, a real challenge there for, for the act of representing life, which is the art of the novel. Um, how does one take that into account? And I think there are not, um, not a lot of writers I know who are wrestling with that, uh, that, that issue these days. Um, finally, before we go to questions, I wanted just to point out that however, in spite of all that, it seems to be one of the great reasons to celebrate the art of the novel is precisely what I said, that in spite of everything, it continues to insist in the primacy of human character in the shaping of human life. And, and if you 
just, I'll just give you an example from my most recent novel, from Shalimar the Clown, which is a novel about an innocent young man from a village community in Kashmir, uh, a village of traveling players, a clown and a tightrope walker, who at the other end of his life becomes a professional assassin and terrorist. And the question I ask myself is, first of all, how to make that convincing. Is it possible for a human being to change so much in a given life? What do you call that? Do you call that brainwashing or do you call it something else? Do you call it something latent in the personality becoming overt? Um, so that's a question which the novel has to convincingly answer to work and, and was something that I had to struggle with for a long time. But the other interesting question that, that struck me there was this, that if you have a place like that where people feel you know, annoyed or humiliated or resentful or angry or whatever it might be, many of the things that motivate people to become violent. Um, well, everybody feels like that, but not everybody becomes violent. And, and so the question is, if everybody feels the same way, but person A becomes a man of violence and his neighbor, person B, feeling exactly the same way does not, why is that? Why person A and not person B? And the answer to that is exactly the old novelistic answer. The answer to that is character. The answer to that is there is something inside one person that makes it possible for them to pick up the gun or the bomb. And there is something inside the second person which does not make it possible, which prevents them from doing so. And in order to understand the decisions of both people, you have to understand them from the inside, not from the outside. And that is, of course, the unique gift of the art of the novel, is to allow us to understand other human beings from the inside. Um, and I think in these days, we have a lot of information give, being given to us in the so-called information media, um, including the one we're on at the moment. Um, we switch on the radio, we switch on the TV, and we are told all sorts of things. But what we are not told very often is how to experience those things from inside the reality of the people amongst whom those things are happening, or indeed the people who are perpetrating those things. You know? Especially if they're things that we find unthinkable, unimaginable, horrible, atrocious. You know, it doesn't become less important to understand them, it becomes more important to understand them. And to understand them is not to excuse them, by the way, which is something often said. Um, and the novel, I think, is a uniquely good form for that kind of inquiry. Uh, it, it allows us to be inside other human beings and to understand them and why they act as they act even if what they do is something which we find abhorrent. And that extraordinary thing, the ability to care for people doing things that you detest, is something very important to the novel, because if you care about them, you care more about what they do. It becomes more a part of your own experience. And so oddly, there's a paradox in writing about these very dark materials, that the more you can make people care about the people perpetrating the, dark, the darkness, the more, in a way, you bring home to people the truth of that. So that, if you like, is a little, a little snapshot of some of the stuff that the arts can do, particularly in these very disturbing times. But I also say that the other thing, I return to my beginning point, which is that the other thing they can do is to get your mind off things, to make you laugh, to put you to sleep, you know, to give you something to do in the bath, uh, to be a way of passing the time at the beach, you know, to make yourself look intelligent by having lots of books on the shelves, <laughs> um, 
there, there are many, many important functions of, of literature, not least of which is allowing people like me to earn a living. Thank you very much. Thank you, Salman Rushdie. You are listening to the Westminster Town Hall Forum, originating from Westminster Presbyterian Church on Nicollet Mall in downtown Minneapolis. I'm Tim Hart Anderson, senior minister at, we at Westminster Church, moderator of today's forum. Our guest is Salman Rushdie. While the ushers collect questions from the audience at Westminster, I would like to thank the sponsors of today's forum, Dr. and Mrs. William Ludwig and the General Mills and Hognander Foundations. We also want to thank all the organizations and individuals who support our mission to promote public discourse on the critical issues of our day. We invite you to join the Westminster Town Hall Forum for our spring series, The Meaning of America. Information on speakers and dates will be available online at eWestminster.org. Mr. Rushdie, if you would return to the pulpit, I will present the questions from our audience. First question has to do with how you uh, responded to the July 7th bomb bombings in London as a Muslim and what kind of uh, interaction you've had with other Muslims around those events. Well, um, well I was horrified like, like everyone in, 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 in England was because on the one hand it was a small, much smaller event than the 9-11 attack in terms of the, the scale of the attack and the amount of the destruction. But on the other hand it was in a way more traumatic because it was not an attack by an enemy. You know, it, it, it was, uh, uh, the thing that I think alarmed people was that, 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 that these young men born and raised in Britain should be prepared to attack their own country. Um, or rather that they should feel so alienated from, so disaffected from that country that they did no longer thought of it to be their own. Um, and I think that was the great shock and since then, there's been an, a, a, quite a substantial debate going on in Britain about what next, which again, of course, has been enormously um, you know, heightened by th events happening currently in France. Um, and I mean, one of the things that I've been encouraged by is the beginning of a willingness on the part of the very, very large part of the British Muslim community that wants nothing to do with this kind of violence, that believes itself to be thoroughly secularized and fully integrated in the community, a willingness of that, of that part of the community to speak out. Um, we were talking just before about, a, I wrote an article uh, in, the, in the London Times not long after those bombings, talking about the need for a modernizing reform movement to begin inside, uh, inside the Islamic world and, that, and suggesting that that might well begin in the so-called Islamic diaspora, in, this, in Islamic communities living in the West. Um, and it was interesting to me that there, I didn't, really had no way of knowing what kind of a response it would get. But it got, first of all, a gigantic response. A very large proportion of that response came from, well, people with Muslim names anyway. One can't tell to what extent they were devout. Um, and the very large majority of those who responded felt that what I was saying was worth saying and needed to be, something needed to be done about it. The problem in England right now, and I think it's to an extent the problem here too, is that there are very few institutions, very few organizations that speak for that enormous 
what you might call silent majority um, of moderate integrated Muslims. Um, and such organizations and institutions that do exist tend to be extremely conservative. They tend to be, well, conservative to radical. You know, so that when the media or politicians go looking for spokespersons, those are the people they find. And, and I think there is a great vacuum in the space where there ought to be a moderate institution or organization. And I've been trying to suggest that such a thing needs to be created in both England and America, and, and maybe elsewhere too, as we see in Europe now. Um, I mean, the best I can say is that that conversation has begun to happen. There are now a lot of debates of this sort going around around Britain, and one can hope that something will come of it, but not yet. You have linked East and West in your novels and impacted our view of the Muslim world, an area of the world we need to understand more fully. Yes, and the answer to that question is no. Um, I'm, not, I'm not a great expert on Chinese literature, I'm afraid, past. <laughs> What author or literary works will end up representing this time period in which we live? Where will your writings fit in? Uh, well, I'm glad you asked me that question, because as it happens, I know the answer to it. <laughs> it is clear that the only books that will survive this era are mine. <laughs> um, and, you know, frankly, it's a mystery to me why anybody bothers to read any other books. Um, but I suppose this is why bookstores exist. Um, other people's books are also available for sale. And it's always seemed to be a bit of an error, really. Um, no, of course, the great thing about this is that we cannot possibly know. And I mean, thank goodness we don't know. You know? Otherwise, we'd have to walk around thinking, well, his books are going to survive. You know? I hate him. <laughs> um, writers are, you know, quite often an ungenerous lot. And that would raise the lack of generosity to almost supernatural levels. <laughs> and and it, it's much better that we don't know. It, it may not necessarily be the books that we currently value. You know, I mean, the same happens in music, for example. There's a certain amount of the music of, let's say, the 50s or the 60s, the popular music, which was their songs which were thought of as pure bubblegum at the time, which people still listen to. I mean, who would have thought that the monkeys would survive 50 years? <laughs> you know, uh, half a century later, you know, um, at least any song by the monkeys containing the word believer appears to have survived, which means two. Um, so we don't know is the answer. And I'm actually, as I say, very relieved not to know. Here's a question from one of the Southwest High School students in the audience. How do you feel about censorship of books? Is it ever justifiable? What does it do to a society that would censor books? Well, you know, of course, I mean, I'm, I'm on the against side of this question. Um, I, I, I think, on the whole, I'm really not in favor of the censorship of books, because there's a very easy way in which one can personally censor a book if one doesn't like it. What, what all one has to do is shut the book. You know? um, at, the, at that point, the book loses its ability uh, to, to do anything to you, uh, unless somebody throws it at you. Uh, is, um, uh, but on the whole, I think we can, it is better left to individuals to, to decide what books they want to read and what books they do not want to read. I don't want somebody else making that decision for me. Uh, I mean, if I go into bookstores, you know, it's, there, there are lots of books that offend me profoundly. I mean, there's the Da Vinci Code, for example, you know, I, you know, at, 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 which I constantly refer to as the worst novel ever written. And, um, and, 
Um, you say you applaud, but I bet you've read it. <laughs> you know, shame on you. Um, however, I am prepared to defend his right to publish those books. Um, it, you know, with a little bit of an effort. Um, but it's... Uh, no, I think it's very, very important that every voice should speak because... And this is, I mean, after all, this is the country of the First Amendment and it's very important to know what that means. It is no trick to defend the free speech of people with whose views you broadly speaking agree or with whom you don't disagree very much or to whose views you are indifferent. I mean, that's easy. The, the defense of free speech begins when somebody says something you can't stand. You know, that's not where it ends. That's the, that's the starting point of the question. Um, and if you cannot defend the right of somebody to say something that you detest, then in fact you do not believe in free speech. You know, and you said that you do not believe in the protections built into the constitution of this country for that, for such speech. And it is unfortunately the case that therefore, in order to defend free speech, you find yourself defending a lot of garbage. Uh, but that's all right. People should be allowed to, to utter garbage if garbage is what they have to utter. Um, and, and, and the great thing about it is that other people can tell it's garbage because it stinks. <laughs> Several questions again from students asking how uh, you are inspired as a writer. Is there any one experience that has most influenced you in your writing? Or are there many experiences that have affected you? Where do you get your ideas? And how do you feel about taking a stand through your books with those ideas? Where do I get my ideas? I, I go to the idea store. <laughs> Which I'm not going to tell you the location of. Because <laughs> otherwise anybody could go there. Um, no, I mean truthfully, I wish I knew, because if I did know the answer to that question, I'd have written a lot more books. Um, ideas come in many, many different packages. You know, I mean, there, there have been one or two moments in my life when I've had the good fortune to essentially get the whole idea more or less straight away, to, be, to more or less have the whole story sitting there waiting to be written. And on uh, other occasions, much more frequent, you have to piece together bits and pieces and work out what you're thinking and what's wrong with it and, and you stumble towards uh, finding out what you're writing about. Uh, so it's a very imperfect science and there really, there isn't a way, I mean, I can't give you any useful advice, that's the terrible thing, because it depends on, on the individual writer's interaction with the moment of it that he's living in, with, the, with his memories and experience and so on, all of that in some way you know, Dostoevsky got all his plots out of the, out of the newspapers. So they were all murder stories. Um, and he used to read the, the crime sections of newspapers and, I mean, and, and, uh, and, and stole his stories from there. Um, I mean, Crime and Punishment was based on a genuine murder that took place. Um, I mean, obviously, he, you know, made it a lot more interesting and profound than it was in the crime reports. Um, but, but people do just get plots from everywhere. You know, when James Joyce was writing Ulysses, um, a novel which took him, if I'm right, think it took him nine years to write, he carried around all that time a copy of the Irish Times for the day on which the novel was set, um, June the 16th, uh, which happened to be the day on which he met 
the woman who became his wife. I mean, it's an amazing act of love, in a way, to write this novel about the day on which he met the woman he fell in love with. Um, Nora Barnacle, who never read it. Uh, <laughs> and indeed, the tragic story is that when he was sent by the publisher the first copy um, of, of Ulysses, and he took out his fountain pen and wrote inside it, to my darling Nora with love from Jim, and he handed it to her, this big brick of a book, you know, and she said, sure, I'll never read all that. And, and, and they had a friend there having a drink with him, and she handed it over to him, and she said, how much will you give me for it? <laughs> um, and, and as far as we know, she, she never did, but on the other hand, she was the basis for the character of Molly Bloom, and the idea of Molly Bloom reading Ulysses is unthinkable, really, so <laughs> uh, she's too busy having sex. <laughs> Several questions have come in about the fatwa that was issued against you. What was it like to live under that? Mm. Has it uh, been revoked currently? Was that an inspiration in you artistically, in your writing? Well, I mean, it's fine now, thank you. Yes, that's the, the short answer is it's been fine for seven years or so. So, um, uh, so it's not a problem uh, in terms of practical life anymore. Um, it wasn't, I wouldn't recommend it. No. Um, um, we, many of us felt that the Iranian PR company went a little far in, in, you know, in getting attention for the book and that they could have held back a little bit, you know. Um, uh, no, truthfully, it was, it was very shocking and, and scary and lasted a long time and, and messed up almost a decade of my life. Um, but the thing that I remember about it more now than that is the fact that as well as all that hostility, there was an amazing international, what you might call, act of love, where an enormous number of people, most of whom I don't know, will never meet, um, joined together in order to resist it. People working in publishing companies, people working in bookstores, uh, but not just that, ordinary readers, people deciding they did not wish to be instructed what books they could publish or sell or buy or read. And I think that, that act of resistance, which by the way succeeded, um, is something which I now remember with more, uh, as being more, uh, having more of an effect on me than, than the threats did. Um, because what it showed is that it is possible to resist the threats. You do not have to simply surrender to them. It is possible to have the guts to keep the book in the bookshop after somebody rings your bookshop shop and threatens you. It is possible to reprint them. My Norwegian publisher was shot in the back. And the day after he recovered from the wounds, he ordered a reprint of the novel. You know, and, and um, it, is a, it was an extraordinary collective act of courage. Um, and not just courage, but principle uh, that allowed that threat to be fought back. You know? and, and to me, I think about that now, and I think that it was actually a matter of some pride to have been a part of that. Um, and I take, I take more inspiration from that. But you know, what happened the, on the other side, I mean, it's a really very banal matter. If you ask me, should you be allowed to kill people because you don't like their books? Um, I think I know the answer to the question. You know? <laughs> it's a, you know, and, and, and by the way, my answer would be no. Um, and, and once you've said that, you've said everything, really. There is, there's nothing more to get to grips with. I mean, it's nasty and dangerous and so on, but there's nothing there's not really much more meat there than somebody tries to bully you, you know what they're doing, you know, and it's not, it's not very complicated. What was much more enriching was the resistance. And, and I think the fact that we, you know, here we stand, it's now 
17 years since the publication of the Titanic Verses. Uh, the book is in print everywhere in the world in, in I think, at the last count, 41 languages. Um, nobody has succeeded in suppressing the book. There's even a Farsi edition of it circulating in Samizdat inside Iran. Um, you know, the book was not suppressed and nor was the author. And in large part, that's because of the this, this large informal alliance of people around the world who just said, no, the hell with that. We're not going to allow that to happen. And yes, that's extremely inspiring. Questions are just as important as answers, one of our listeners says. What are the questions you seek to pose or respond to in your writing? Well, that's a very good question, I'd say. Uh, because it is true. Anybody, you know, rent a politician and he'll give you an answer. You know? <laughs> and and uh, it's much, much, much harder to look, to look critically, which means to say questioningly, um, at the world in which we live. I mean, right now, I think one of the big questions, and it's not just a question for writers, I think it's a question for all of us, is how do we continue to be ourselves in the face of the attack against us? How, how is it possible to resist giving up those things, those freedoms, which actually make us the society which those attacking it are attacking? You know, how can we avoid becoming the mirror image of the enemy. And I think there is, if I could put on my hat of being president of American Pen for a minute, um, we had a, a meeting in New York City the day before yesterday at which many of the greatest writers in America took part. Edward Albee, who was here recently, Paul Auster, Don DeLillo, Dave Eggers, Sandra Cisneros, Heidi Julevitz, uh, many, many, 15 writers, to talk specifically about the extremely important subject right now of torture. Um, I think it's quite extraordinary that a president of the United States should seek, should threaten to veto an amendment proposed by a Republican senator, John McCain, saying that the United States should not use cruel, inhuman, or degrading treatment of its prisoners. This is one thing which, as I say, 15 writers spoke about two days ago, and um, that's one thing that writers can do. We can ask that question right now. Thank you, Salman Rushdie. We remind you to join us for our next Town Hall Forum series in the spring, entitled The Meaning of America. Look for times and dates on eWestminster.org, and let's thank our guest today again, Salman Rushdie. Thank you.